0: Anybody out there? Roll up, roll up! Ladies and
1: gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here, host, Dadryl Leyland.
0: Recently, I joined a Facebook group called The Amazing Spider Man, parentheses, TV series, close parentheses, maintained by Paul Rogers. It's a great little site dedicated to giving the seventies TV adaptation of Spider-Man a DVD or Blu-ray release to put it out there legally, instead of us having to rely on bootlegs or copies of the old VHS releases. One of the things Paul has been doing is hosting screenings for people to watch along with, and cleaning up episodes as best as they can to show what a high-def release could look like. Recently, the Facebook group made available for free two cleaned-up episodes: season one's "The Curse of Raver" and season two's. The Captive Tower. The Amazing Spider Man TV show is a curious beast, being little seen and held in even lower regard, but I find myself having a soft spot for it, in my nostalgia fuelled memories anyway. Now, I don't want you, lovely listener, to think that I think that the show is good. It isn't, not really. It's not as imaginative with its low budget or as well written as The Incredible Hulk, but it isn't as downright terrible as the Captain America movies from the same time period. It occupies this curious middle ground of being neither good nor bad. It simply is. It's a surprise the UK even got this show at all. By the time the ITV network started showing the series in 1981, it had already met its demise in the US after two very truncated seasons, and it was quite unusual for a show that had already been cancelled to be given so prominent a time slot. Perhaps ITV hoped the show would be as successful as The Incredible Hulk. Perhaps it had an embargo on being screened due to the cinematic release of some episodes. Whatever the reason, ITV screened both seasons back-to-back in an early evening 7.30 time slot. In America, the two seasons erred over a significantly longer period, September 1977 to July 1979, but despite this, only produced 13 episodes due to network dilly-dallying. As this was pre-internet, I was oblivious to all of this, getting all of my knowledge about the show from Starburst magazine and the Marvel UK Spider-Man comics, which had both featured articles on the series when it arrived on our cinema screens. Yes, as alluded to already, The Amazing Spider-Man was another in a long line of telebox shows that we had to pay to see, albeit on a 40-foot screen, which often did them no favours. Cinematic releases of TV shows often relieved them to be cash-strapped to furs, and Spider-Man was no different. Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water Network has said that he wouldn't have been surprised whilst watching Spider-Man to see Starsky's red Torino screeching around a corner, and this does pretty much sum the show up. It's very definitely a show of its time, and that time is the 1970s. Taking its cues from the Incredible Hulk, Spider-Man is pretty much the only remarkable thing about this series, with everything else being generic 70s TV bad guys doing generic 70s TV things. Whereas the Hulk had a beating heart, though, Spider-Man seems to have had its heart removed. Still, Nicholas Hammond is well cast as college-aged Peter Parker, and the origin, as presented in the opening telefilm, is rather faithful to the comics. If we ignore that there's no Uncle Ben, no arrogance to Peter, no life lesson learned, and no tragedy. Okay, so not that faithful... Spider-Man was enough of a success in cinema screens that two other films were released. Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge, which threw the telefilm The Chinese Web out to unsuspecting punters under a new title. And Spider-Man Strikes Back, which bolts the two-part episode The Deadly Dust together to make one feature. When the series did eventually hit TV, Spider-Man Comics became a full-on print advert for the show, changing its name to Spider-Man TV Comic and ditching the drawn and painted covers for images from the show. One of the UK annuals even did a full episode guide for the series. What has kept the show on the edge of public consciousness for me and others of a similar age is that whilst the series itself disappeared into television purgatory, never receiving a full repeat run, the BBC dusted off the movies for a screening in 1989, with all three movies receiving an outing on BBC Two at 1800 hours, and then another airing in 1992 in the same time slot. The TV show had two distinctly different opening title sequences – the first season has a generic screechy theme that doesn't say Spider Man at all, and the clips are all quite slow paced and dull. The actor's credits appear in a spider's web pattern. It's not very dramatic, and the theme isn't at all catchy. Here, say what you think. <laughs> of Rava, written by Robert James and Dick Nelson and directed by Michael Caffey, was the episode uploaded for our delight, and I watched it with some trepidation. Would this be a terrible mistake? Would Spider-Man be a show best left to memory? I'd only watched one or two episodes of this since it originally aired, and both of them were for podcasts with me, watching the pilot movie with Chris and Cindy Franklin for Supermates, and the episode Night of the Clones for an episode of Hey Kids Comics. Let's dive in, shall we, and see if the memory cheats. Saving me some time, the opening explains the plot.
2: You've travelled a long way and I understand the idol is important to your people. I sympathise with you, Mr Mandak. However, the exhibit will open tomorrow on schedule. Rava must not be desecrated. The idol will not be damaged, not even be touched. The face of Rava is not for the unbeliever. I'm only the director of the museum. I cannot cancel the exhibit. As the chairman of the executives, Mr. Jameson, the board of trustees, I have to answer to all of them. And they will answer to Rava. I warn you, Professor Rustin. Unless Rava is returned to Kalistan, you will feel his wrath. You mean the famous curse of Rava? You mock him. Oh, no, no, I mean no disrespect to your religion. It's uh, just that I find it hard to believe in curses. If you persist in treating our God as a carnival freak, he will do more than just warn you, Professor Rustin. Much more.
0: After this demonstration of Rava's powers, actually guest star Theodore Baikel moving stuff with his minds, we see students with nothing better to do involved in a protest to return Rava to Khalistan, and Peter Parker is bopping around taking photos. There seems to be only a few protesters, and they just keep walking around in front of the camera to make it seem like there are more of them. Giving credit to the director of photography, the scenes in the museum with the Rava statue are quite spookily lit, with a good use of shadows. Suddenly, Peter's spider sense tingles. Spider-Man's spider sense is one of those powers that seem to cause headaches when it has to be depicted in live action. In the comics, the artist draws a few squiggly lines around Peter's head, and the reader gets the point. In live action, it can seem a bit prosaic and weird if not done properly. Here, the producers elect to depict the Spider-Sense as a freeze frame as Peter's eyes spark. He then sees flashes of danger in negative but tinted red and blue. Having received his warning, Peter dutifully changes to Spider-Man and intervenes as the demonstration gets ugly. I do have to say that the wall-crawling effects are very well done and the costume is remarkably comics faithful. It actually looks like a high school kid made it out of whatever he had in the attic. But for all that, it isn't bad at all. Theodore Bykel isn't a fan of Spider-Man's interference, and he uses his mental abilities to make a statue nearly fall on our hero. This is unfortunately a very dumb moment. A Spidey just stands there watching the statue wobble until it falls, instead of, you know, actually doing anything about it, like webbing it up or, here's a wacky idea, just moving two steps to the left. Shouty Police Chief Barbera, played by Michael Pataki, and Jonah Jameson, here played by Robert F. Simon, show up and get into a yelling contest. Jameson is as irascible here as he is in the comics. He doesn't believe in a stupid curse, and he doesn't give a shit about some two-bit country in the Middle East. That damn statue is going to be displayed! Peter tries to sell Jonah his pictures, but Jonah refuses because they will give bad publicity to an event he is involved in.
3: When you see some of these, Mr. Jameson, I've got some real winners here. Parker, I can't print these. But you always say that pictures like these are what sell newspapers. Not my newspapers. Parker, don't you know that my wife was a patron of that museum? You realize that I'm now chairman of the board of trustees? Why would I want to give the museum this kind of publicity? But you always say to report the news as it happens, no matter who's involved. Stop telling me what I always say. Well, I suppose I can always do something else with these. Like what? I took these pictures on my own time. That gives me the right to do whatever I want with them. Parker, you would sell those to a rival paper. Where's your loyalty? Mr. Jameson, I'm just a poor graduate student who's trying to squeeze by as a low-paid, part-time photographer. Now, these are good. They're really good. I was the only photographer there, so that makes these an exclusive. I think somebody will buy them from me, don't you, sir? Rita. Yeah, boss. We're buying some pictures from Parker, and the negatives. Authorize payment, will you? I'd throw in a $50 bonus. Yes, sir. Ah. Thank you, Mr. Jameson, that's very generous of you. Get out of here, Parker. Oh, I am impressed.
2: I am very impressed. You know, the last guy that got 50 bucks out of Mr. High that easily was the guy that mugged him in Central Park last summer.
3: Oh, really? You have the chief all wrong. He's really a very fair man. You just have to know how to talk to him. Pete,
2: why do I get the feeling you're conning me?
0: This is actually a real winner of a scene and felt very much like a moment from the comic book. Peter essentially blackmailing Jonah into buying the photos is pretty funny, especially as Jonah is being an ass. Jonah goes to the museum where Bykel uses his abilities to make it look like Rava attacks. Jonah freaks out and calls Barbara, who accuses Jameson of fabricating the whole thing. I don't know that Barbara really has enough to arrest Jonah, other than his suspicions, but he chucks him in jail anyway. Peter gets Jonah out of jail by appealing to Barbara's ego, and then he continues to investigate the spooky goings-on. Rava turns out to be a relic from an ancient cult from Kalistan. Kalistan wants the idol returned so that Baikal can use it to re establish the cult of Rava and cause a revolution. The episode culminates with Spider Man going head to head with Baikal, a scene that really would have benefited from some looped dialogue of Spider Man taking the piss out of the whole ridiculous endeavour. Baikal is hoist on his own petard when he's crushed under the Rava statue he wanted to crush Spider Man under. It's a game of two halves, this one. On the one hand, this is a plot that the comics would do on a particularly unimaginative day, but they would have had far more action and drama. The lack of a decent supporting cast also derails the episode in this regard. Barbera seems somewhat muted since his appearance in the pilot episode, although Jameson seems to have had a character infusion. It's still a pretty generic 70s TV show plot, though. On the other hand, there are some nice character moments – Spider-Man isn't as quippy as he is in the comics, but there's a nice scene where he rescues Barbera with his web and then lowers him to the ground, tossing off an insult as he does so. The subplot about Jameson potentially losing the bugle as a result of this arrest is also something that the comics would have done, but again, they'd have done it better. There's a later scene where Spider-Man swings onto the roof of Barbera's car, which is also quite funny and in character. Hammond should have at least attempted to disguise his voice, though. Where all this hokum falls down is with what it isn't, rather than with what it is. Even on a 70s budget, the producers could have included Harry Osborne, Flash Thompson, Gwen Stacy and Murray Jane Watson, and up to the soap opera angle, making this a true adaptation of the college era of the comics, at least in that regard. I don't understand why the character of Rita, Jameson's secretary, isn't Glory Grant, nor do I understand why they got rid of Robbie. I understand that May only appears twice in the series, and this seems like a loss as well. Having Peter be Spider-Man simply because is also a mistake, as his TV origin has no tragedy to it, and thus he's a 70s DC Comics version of the character, rather than the Marvel Comics version. Weirdly, the parts you think would be embarrassing, the Spider-Man scenes, are actually rather good, if quite low-key. The special effects aren't grand, but get the point across quite well. Some of the wall-crawling and the swingy by Studman Fred Waugh is actually really impressive, for being quite obviously practical. Hammond is pretty good in the role, possessing the natural inquisitive nature Peter has, and, given the chance, I reckon he could have done very well with the angsty part of the role as well. The Curse of Rava, though, is pretty mundane stuff. It's quite slow-moving, the plot isn't that engaging, and the characters aren't idiosyncratic enough to keep the viewer interested for the duration of the running time. By the time Season 2 rolled around, changes had been made... Perhaps realising their mistake, the second season has a far more dynamic opening sequence. The music is jauntier, and the clip's faster paced with better cutting. It's still not really a Spider-Man theme, unless we assume Peter Parker is into funky jazz, but it's better than the season one version. Here, make your own mind up. Michael Pataki's Captain Babura has been replaced by Ellen Bry, playing a character called Julie Masters. The episode was written by Greg Dinello, Bruce Kalish and Philip John Taylor and directed by Cliff Bowle. Normally I would play you the teaser, but the season one episode didn't have one. And the teaser for this episode is very visual with lots of sound effects and music. So it seems kind of pointless, really. Rita and Peter are reporting on the opening of a modern and fully computer controlled building at which Jonah is the honoured guest. New cast member Julie Masters arrives. Julie is apparently Peter's competition in the photography department... ...and her arrival causes Peter to start drooling like a teething baby. The opening is pretty good. The dialogue is perfunctory, but Hammond and Chip Fields, who plays Rita... ...manage to play with the exposition to make it feel real and even genuine. Peter is concerned that Rita not damage his new car. And by new, we mean what Peter could afford. So the handbrake doesn't work. I do wonder why Peter even has a car... This seems to me to be an expense he could he could well do without. With Chipfield's contractual obligation to the episode fulfilled, Rita leaves, and Peter jostles with Julie for photos. It pains me to admit to being confused by this script, but I was unsure who Julie worked for. Was she another Bugle employee? Begging the question as to why the Bugle was sent two photographers to cover this really rather boring assignment. Or is she employed by another newspaper? Again begging the question why the hell are two papers covering this? As some boring bloke in a suit waffles on about how great this automated building is, some blue collar workers steal in and start planting explosives. You can see where this is going, right? It turns out that these invaders are led by a highly decorated and well trained military colonel, and they are after money because he is an exceptional thief. The terrorists aren't that terrible. They aren't out to kill anyone, just be rich. And as such, one of the guards the terrorist knocks out earlier wakes up and manages to jam a screwdriver in the cherry picker the guys are using to scale the outside of the building. The people inside react with mild peril as they see this poor guy fall and dangle from the picker, hundreds of feet above the ground. See, the guests have no idea that this guy isn't an innocent window cleaner and so Peter changes to Spider-Man to save him from certain death. As with the Curse of Rava, the wall-crawling effects are really well done. And the point-of-view shots as Spider-Man scales the building and rescues the guy are totally convincing. As Spidey is strutting his funky stuff, the other terrorists hit the computer room. They use the computer to start shutting down the building, just as Peter, Julie, Jameson and the guy who designed the building also head that away to allow some photos to be taken. However, the building locks down, trapping everyone on the floor. As people are starting to feel a little panicked... A message comes over the Tannoy.
4: Your attention, please. This is Major E.W. Foster speaking.
0: This tower is under siege.
4: All of its occupants have been taken hostage by 20 armed, highly trained, disciplined personnel under my command. They have been given strict orders to harm no one who cooperates with us. Only those who oppose us or act against us need fear for their safety. The remainder of this message is directed to Deputy Mayor Edward Nugent. Mr. Deputy Mayor, the responsibility for these people's lives is in your hands. You can protect them and buy their freedom by arranging a ransom of ten million dollars.
2: Ten million.
4: Money is to be put in an armored vehicle. It is to be driven to this building. The time is now exactly 220. Considering traffic conditions at this hour, and the time necessary to assemble, count, and package that much currency, the armored vehicle has to be to this building no later than 347. The telephone on the tower level is still operative. You may use it to make your necessary arrangements. If you do not adhere precisely to my instructions, or if you inform the police and they decide to mount a counteroffensive All of your lives will be terminated.
0: Thank you very much. Armed with this knowledge, Peter changes to Spider-Man and gets to work as the police try to negotiate with the Murr. What follows is a variation on Die Hard, or rather Roderick Thorpe's novel that inspired Die Hard, Nothing Lasts Forever. To be fair, it probably wasn't an original idea when Thorpe wrote his novel. From the point that the terrorists lay out the demands, this is fairly entertaining, but still not as suspenseful as it should be. Still, there's a great scene where Spider-Man has to stop the police helicopter from landing on the mine's roof, which could have had a little more action, but hey, it's a 70s TV show. Spider-Man then becomes a tightrope walker to get the mines himself. Cliff Bowl went on to become a preeminent TV director, working on numerous episodes of Star Trek, including fan favourite The Best of Both Worlds, and he handles the Spider-Man action quite well. He uses a lot of low angles to give the scenes a sense of height and lots of POV shots to establish that what Spider-Man is doing is pretty daring stuff. Again, if I have a complaint, it's that Spider-Man is just a guy in a suit when he's talking to the SWAT guys. It wouldn't have killed Hammond to crouch, crawl, pose a little, give Spider-Man some character and movement. The police are also on very friendly terms with Spidey, whereas a more antagonistic relationship may have worked better and added some drama. It would have been more comics correct to have Spider-Man worry about the cops and the criminals, and have the cops wonder if Spider-Man was on the criminal's side. Anyway, the crooks then gas everyone so they're out conscious on the floor. A word here about the score. For years after this series, whenever I read a Spider-Man comic, I would hear this theme in my head... Danny Elfman, or anything, but it left an impression. The police obey the terrorist instructions, and as the money arrives, Spider Man gets himself back in the building by doing exactly what John McClane does. He webs himself to the roof, pushes himself backwards out over the street, and then swings at the window with enough impact to smash through. Back inside, Peter revives all the gassed hostages as the Major and his men start abandoning ship with the cash. However, one of them, Farnham, seems to be having second thoughts. All through the episode, this guy has been having this really weird love affair with the computer, to the point where I really thought he was going to flop it out and shag the damn thing. He fakes some reason for bailing out and returns to the computer room. He refers to the computer system as lovely and bangs on about its beautiful curves and gorgeous lines and talks about how it really shouldn't be destroyed. Farnham tries to prevent the explosion to destroy the computer system, but sadly arrives just a few seconds too late, almost having a nervous breakdown at the sight of this delightful computer system smoking like a 70-year-old nicotine addict. As luck would have it, Peter knows Farnham from a class at university, despite Farnham looking a good 10 years older than Peter. This episode was going so well until here... This is all a bit dopey that Farnum would fall in love with the computer system so much that he would go back to it after having got away with 10 million dollars. He could have bought himself his own sexy computer system for that much money. Still his adoration is such that he betrays the Major to Peter, confessing all. It's such a massive coincidence that Peter would know this guy and it comes from nowhere in the script so it ends up being just a massive eye roll removing any suspense from the scene. With Peter now aware of the complete escape plan to leg it through the large basement tunnels, he changes to Spider-Man, catches up with them, and then dispatches them in a rather brief and then spectacular fight scene. This is really oddly staged, with the scene shadows fighting with accompanying sound effects rather than getting a final battle. Still, given the budget for this show, I can't imagine the fight would have been much more than throw a punch at Spidey, Spidey ducks and punches the bad man in the gut. Overall, The Captive Tower was more interesting than The Curse of Rava, in that the plot was at least worthy of being a Spider-Man story, although it ends very abruptly. Spider-Man webs up the major and the credits roll. There's no tag scene here wrapping everything up. With that in mind, this is probably one of the better episodes, as there is quite a lot of Spider-Man in it, rather than a few contractually obligated appearances. The flaw with this series, though, is the lack of characterisation. Fleshing out the cast would have helped the series immeasurably. Apparently this is quite a rare episode, not being bundled into a 90 minute movie for syndication as the others are, and as such isn't often seen on bootlegs or downloads, so I do appreciate the Facebook page making this available to us. Despite the overall ordinariness of the series, I do have a soft spot for it. I tuned in every week to see my comic book hero in live action, and saw every episode, even taping the three movies when the BBC aired them, and I watched them quite a few times each. As I said, it isn't good per se, but it's an important part of the Spider-Man mythology and is worthy of an official release.
1: The Long Halloween. Hush. Dark Knight Returns. The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about and talked about countless times over the years. They're considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat-comics that are being guitar and overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show, The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show comes out twice a month with the first episode focusing on the back books from the late 70s and early 80s. We're starting with the Len Wien run and working our way forward through the books written by Jerry Conway and eventually Doug Mensch. On the second episode of the month, we'll dig into the various adventure comics that were based on the Fox Kids slash Kids WB Batman animated shows because they're really good and hardly anyone seems to remember that they exist. The show can be found at the Fortress of Baileytude podcasting network, which is located at www.fortressofbaillietude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember
0: or care about.
1: Because somebody has to.
0: And I'm back with the email section of the show. You know, do a show about uh, an up-to-date property, like Lethal Weapon, something that's still on the air. Nothing. Not a single email. Do a show that's 50 years old, Inundated with comments and emails. Inundated. Well, that's not strictly true. A couple of people emailed in about the lethal weapon episode. but uh, Anyway, let's let's crack on, should we? Let's crack on, should we? As uh, Clark Kent says something similar in Superman the movie. Andrew Morton was the first person to email in. Hi, Andy. Hi, Andrew. Listening to your Captain Scarlet episode, and I have to agree with everything you say, which is always, I think, the best way to open any email. It's an incredibly dark series that had potential storylines that went unexplored. How does Scarlet deal with constantly being killed? Does he feel the pain of each death? When they discover how to kill the Mistrons, why do the Mistrons not kill him permanently with the same method? I always thought both this and Terrorhawks would make great adult action adventure shows if you iron out some of the sillier bits. The newer CGI series was also very good. There was an episode where a Mysterion agent, who does not agree with the plan to destroy the Earth, kills a Spectrum agent, as that is the only way to communicate with us. I remember getting the feeling they were sorry they had to, but that that person killed was a soldier and died for a worthy cause. Some cracking stuff. Looking forward to the next episode, Andrew Morton. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Very Thank you for emailing in. Uh, I am in the process of trying to find... The CG series of Captain Scarlet preferably on Blu-ray for a reasonable price. It does not seem to be cheap but uh, Captain Scarlet, Gerry Anderson stuff although I have seen a lot of Gerry Anderson stuff in, um, in Sainsbury's of all places for um, reasonable prices like the complete Space 1999, complete UFO complete Captain Scarlet, the complete Thunderbirds but I've never seen the new Captain Scarlet uh, series on sale anywhere, but uh, rest assured if I manage to pick it up uh, I will and I will watch it. I did note with some interest that on the network earth.com website that Captain Scarlet is getting a uh, Blu-ray release, the original 1960s one, so very much looking forward to that. That, that may have to be uh, a purchase at some point as well because as I say the uh, the what's his name ones are a little bit fuzzy, but you know, worthy of purchasing, I think. Uh, our next email is from Daniel Doherty. Uh, hi Andy, hi Daniel. I just finished listening to the latest. I just finished listening to the latest episode about Captain Scarlet, and I want to thank you. Oh well, you know, any time, Dan. Not only for introducing me to a show that I want to check out, but because hearing you talk about it has piqued my interest, one of the many things that's great about the palace, but you've also helped solve a musical mystery for me. Ooh, tell on! When going through back episodes of Hey Kids Comics or The Fantastic Cast, I'll occasionally hear trailers for shows that sadly no longer exist. Pad Smash, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, etc., One that really stood out to me was the first trailer for Steve Lacey's 20-minute long box, not confused with the Farscape version that was used later. The music from that early trailer caught my attention. It had a cool retro 60s feel to it, but I could never figure out where it originally came from. When I heard your Captain Scarlet theme, I immediately perked up and said, that's the music from the old 20-minute long box trailer. Because of your show, I've finally identified this piece of sci-fi music. And for that, I say, thanks. Sincerely, Dan Dorritick. Well, you're very welcome. I mean, I didn't mean that, Dan. It was just a lucky byproduct of uh, the episode. But I'm glad that uh, you got something out of it. Is it the bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum bit that you you used in that trailer? Or is it the actual Captain Scarlet theme? Uh, I don't remember that trailer, I'll be honest with you. I don't remember a lot of trailers to be fair. But uh, I'm glad I was able to solve that mystery for you. I I believe there is a Captain Scarlet soundtrack available from Fanderson. Um, Fanderson soundtracks are normally quite expensive, but they normally sound pretty good. I myself have the UFO and the Space 1999 sets. I don't have the Captain Scarlet one. So all the music from that episode had to be ripped from the actual episodes. But uh, I'm on the lookout for it because I do like a bit of Barry Gray. Jason Trenner has emailed in, Captain Scarlet, and wow. Greetings. I have to say, Captain Scarlet sounds amazing. Glad it also has a remake that sounds to be a decent successor. There is one thing you forgot to mention. I probably didn't forget, Jason. I probably just didn't know it. That would be that the second Doctor Who novel, not the second Doctor Who novel, the second Doctor Doctor Who novel, Indestructible Man, the Doctor ends up involved in events of a bleak pastiche of Jerry Anderson's body of work. I never realised why to be the second Doctor until finding out that he was the Doctor on Earth when at least some of these series used to be on TV. Not sure how good the novel is or how easy it is to find, but I somehow have this feeling the thought of the second Doctor and Captain Scarlet teaming up is stuck in your head. I may have to track that one down. The Indestructible Man? Hmm. I'd be very interested to see how that pans out. Thank you, Jason, for that. Uh next email is actually about the Lethal Weapon Show. And it's from Nathaniel Wayne. Hi Nathaniel. I'm a bit behind. Well only a bit. I've only released a Captain Scale episode since. But I just listened to your Legion to your Lethal Weapon episode. I just listened to your Lethal Weapon episode. I have to say this sounds surprisingly good. The films are decent, although it's always struck me as a little odd that a raucous buddy comedy franchise of increasing levels of ridiculousness spawned out of a fairly sombre film about a guy with a death wish that only had sprinkling of funny moments often cut short by drama, action or genuine pain. I was sceptical of the entire idea of doing this as a TV series, specifically when it came to the character of Riggs. I figured one of a few possible things were going to happen. Most likely, they just drop the Death Wish angle and lean more on the sequels version of the character, funny loose cannon type. I figured that if they did conclude it, that it would just become old as the character was not allowed to grow in the interest of retaining this trait or they would have him get over it and then it just wouldn't be a feature of the series going forward. So I'm delighted that they appear to have threaded the needle of having it and doing it right. Having him build enough of a life to not want to die anymore but then having something sending him spiralling downwards again is a great way to have that character aspect flare up and I feel it was earned rather than cheap. I'm doubly impressed because normally I loathe the this person from your life didn't just die, they were murdered trope. More often than not, it just makes things too clean by giving the character somebody to blame and a way to achieve closure that is not reflective of having to deal with the loss in the real world, which so rarely has that kind of rhyme or reason. However, in this case, it's different. While it may have taken away the sense of cosmic unfairness that the death might have originally had, it actually replaced that with something by having the revelation be way too deep, be a way to deeply impact the characters rather than a cheap shot at closure. Um, All of that is absolutely spot on, given that you've never seen the show. One of the things that I did mention in that episode was how the the take rigs on a a severely interesting character journey, character arc, through that entire first season to bring it all crashing down around his ears in the final two episodes. The reason I bought it, because normally I'm absolutely with you, Nathaniel, I normally hate that the person in your life didn't die, they were murdered. I hated it when they did it in Batman 89, when it turned out that the Joker killed Bruce's parents. That's a slightly different thing, but it's tying it all together. I absolutely despise that. But the way it worked in Lethal Weapon was Riggs was investigating it from the wrong angle. He thought as he started to get closer and closer and closer to the investigation and what was going on, he thought that Miranda had been killed because of him. And when it turns out that that was just a side effect, Miranda was killed because of her dad. I felt that made it work better because essentially they were getting at her father by killing Miranda and, So for Riggs, it was Cosmic Unfurnace. Miranda just happened to be the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time, related to the wrong person. So that, it was kind of, they had their cake and ate it. So they did a really good job with that. Sadly, continues Nathaniel, it's unlikely I'll ever get around to actually watching the show. The pace of my output on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel leaves me with little time for watching things I'm also not going to be making videos about. This is completely self-imposed, of course, but there's nobody to blame but myself. But hey, it keeps me busy and out of trouble. That, that's true. Um, I'll be honest with you, the temptation to do an episode of Palace about everything I watch is all-consuming. But sometimes I just like to watch stuff and enjoy it and have a family night instead of thinking, take notes, remember that. Ooh, that plot illogicality, I'll talk about that. Yeah, sometimes you just got to put all that to one side. Nathaniel continues, I don't think I responded to your thoughts on extended films before this, but I'll add one to the mix where the additions really made the difference. Kingdom of Heaven. The butchered theatrical cut was a burly coherent series of medieval action set pieces. The director's cut was an epic tale of wonderful scope and characters with journeys that were extremely well played out. By and large though I find that extended editions, or even director's cut, are really better. Lord of the Rings being the obvious exception. More often than not the scenes cut for the theatrical run were done for reasons of pacing and honestly that's what's supposed to happen. Extended editions are usually bloated affairs that are a slog to get through. Lord of the Rings was actually very smart about this because the theatrical theatrical versions are complete experiences and don't feel like anything is missing. And while the extended editions, which like you are the only version I own at home, are more leisurely paced and that works for a home viewing just fine. I hear they gave the Hobbit movies extended editions as well, and the fact that they were already way longer than they should have been in the first place, even as individual films, to say nothing of making three of the things, make me shudder at the very thought. Great work, as always. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you very much, Nathaniel. Check out Nathaniel's YouTube channel, Council of Geeks. Recently, doing some very, very good stuff on the uh, top ten Stephen Moffat .dot two episodes, ten worst Stephen Moffat .dot episodes, a discussion of the ten best episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, some great stuff on Nathaniel's YouTube channel. So check it out. I've never seen Kingdom of Heaven, but you've made me want to. And yeah, the way we normally watch Lord of the Rings over Christmas is we normally watch it one disc one night. So essentially, it's a six part mini series. And as that, it works really well in the home viewing experience. Because essentially, it's a 90-minute episode every night over the course of a week. And that plays really well in the home. Yeah, like you, I think those extended editions probably wouldn't have played as well in, in the theatrical experience. But yeah, certainly at home, they work exceptionally well. I am tempted to go to The Hobbit. But like you, Angela and I both watched the first Hobbit film and were were bored beyond belief by it. We couldn't believe that this was the same thing, the same people that had made Lord of the Rings, which is such a great sequence of movies. And as such, we've never gone back and watched the two Hobbit sequels, let alone the extended editions. And every time we do a Lord of the Rings rewatch, I say to Angie, look, we really should do The Hobbit as well. And she just gives me side eye, which normally means, (laughs) yeah, that's not going to happen. So, you know, that's where we are with the Hobbit movies. I understand there are some people that love them. Um, I have to be honest, I don't really think I've given them a first shake. That first one didn't float my vo- boat, sorry, so I've, uh, I've never watched the rest. I may be missing out. Who can say? Maybe one day I'll get round to that. And finally, Chris Franklin has emailed in, as he always does. It's lovely to hear from the mighty Mr. Franklin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. I thoroughly enjoyed your episodes on Captain Scarlet, despite never seeing it. This seems to be a pattern of late. None of the Jerry Anderson shows ran in my neck of the woods as a kid. Not even Space 1999. You deprived child! Oh, how did you grow up without a bit of Jerry Anderson madness? I bet you were watching that Super Friends filth, weren't you? But over the years, continues Chris, I learned of them. I had no idea Captain Scarlet was so dark and adult. Nice to hear it still holds up so well for you. I'll have to give it a look. Very excited to hear you talk more Hammond Spider-Man. I will always have a soft spot for that series, despite it missing a lot of the heart that makes Spidey... Well, Spidey. Cheers, Chris. Well, funnily enough, Christopher, I just said exactly the same thing. Uh about it lacking heart and I obviously honestly did not read that email until I'd made the show so that's the way it is anyway hope you oh I'm getting the message hope you that always seems to happen just I'm closing out the show doesn't it uh hope you as Chris uh enjoyed this uh discussion of Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man next up I think I'm going to be doing something for Superman's 80th but I've not quite decided what it is yet I have, speaking of Chris, I have a list of Justice League Unlimited episodes in the book that I was going to talk about, but Chris has just started JLUcast JLU cast over on the Fire and Water Network with his lovely wife, Cindy, and they are covering Justice League, and I'm kind of, mm, maybe I should leave that alone now, but the episodes I've picked are well in the future for them to get to, so a lot of time will have died down, so maybe I'll just go ahead and do them anyway, but you know, as usual for this show, I've not decided As usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation. And, as usual, go and buy your shit through Amazon, through our link, because that gives us a kickback, lets us do these shows without costing us anything. And that's always a good deal. Uh, I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me. And remember, everything's going to be okay. Goodbye.